Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm Nick Bilton. Um, so we have not one, but two guests this week. This is a very rare occasion for us over at Vanity Fair's Hive, where we have two people uh, that are being interviewed. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, and then we can kind of jump in from there. So take it away, folks. Well, we're double flattered to be with you, uh, Nick. Thank you for having us. Um, my name's Oz Veloshin, and I'm one of the hosts of Sleepwalkers, um, which is a podcast about the crazy directions that AI is taking us in. And um, I was kind of wanted to make this show, the original sort of desire to make it came out of seeing the, a lot of the Facebook early employees saying they wouldn't let their own children use technology. And that got me thinking, you know, it's time to ask some questions about all of our use of technology as well. Yep. It's a, that's a, that is a theme in Silicon Valley. And my name is Kara Price, and I am a co-host of the show, the co-host of the show. And I used to report on tech and science at the Huffington Post and had a show called Talk Nerdy to Me. And Oz reached out to me and said he was doing the show, and I was very happy to join him because I've always been interested in sort of the intersection between humanity and technology and and more so what technology is doing to us as human beings and not so much what technology is doing i don't know technology is doing on its own i guess <laughs> yeah well, okay so so let's jump in so this is this is a topic that i've talked a lot about over the past uh, couple of years on on this podcast and and we tend to kind of always get into to the the bad and sometimes the good and and one thing I kind of just to kind of set the tone for where we are in the world today, I, before we jump into to the podcast, which is an amazing podcast, both terrifying and um, and incredibly exciting to listen to. I wonder if you guys can explain a little bit about right now the news cycle is talking about the issues with China and the U.S. and the future of technology and how we are about to embark on a world where we could have a completely new Cold War, where on one side of it, you have a technolo technological infrastructure that is Western-based, and on the other, you have a technological infrastructure that is Eastern-based. Um, Huawei, the, the technology company, has been in the news. There's companies that are banning each other in different countries. How does the, is are we setting ourselves up for kind of a pretty terrifying situation in the future, or is this actually a good thing? Well, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, this has been brewing for a while. So Eric Schmidt, the chairman of Google, warned a couple of years ago that we were moving towards a world of a bifurcated internet, so two internets. And so the kind of the infrastructure of that has been playing out for a while in China. Um, well, I just came back from products like Google and Facebook have been banned for a while. On the US side, we've been kind of, I guess, slower off the mark to ban Chinese technology, although, of course, this concern about Huawei uh, providing cell towers and the back, in back end into those cell towers has been around for a while. Um, but right now we're in a moment where these kind of trends which have been brewing for a while have been politicized in a moment. And so there's this kind of accelerating, um, strengthening sense of a brewing conflict um, but the architectures were already separate, and um, we are moving to a world of two internets. China is exporting technology using uh, this Belt and Road Initiative, where they're where they're 
countries like Pakistan, Vietnam are signing technology agreements with them, you know, which will ultimately lock them into Chinese technology standards. Um, and we in the US, you know, have Google and Facebook serving Europe and obviously ourselves in America and Canada. And so we are moving into two internets. And I think that's particularly scary because we know how much of a source of truth the internet is. So two internets, two global sources of truth, that really, you know, kindles the fire of opposition. And so do you think that, you know, is it going to, so we've always heard these stories of, oh, we're going to have a, the future of, of warfare um, is going to be, you know, hackers versus hackers. Does this kind of set that up even more where, where the future of once these two worlds exist in the way that they will, where it's going to be, you know, our Eastern, you know, Eastern spies trying to, trying to get access to technology on, on our side and vice versa. And, and I'm assuming this means that, that the war for AI, because there is so much information on these different, on these networks, uh, the war to develop the next artificial intelligence that can analyze all this stuff um, and filter things out on the other side um, is going to, to, to heaten up even more. Is that right? I think so. I think it's just quickly. I think it's important to note also that this isn't exact. I mean, it is an East versus West, but I think one of the scary things, especially that I've noticed recently in just our reporting for the podcast is that this could also cause a lot of infighting between allies. You know, I think in the UK, you know, Britain has not ruled out Huawei and, you know, there's supposed to be an alliance called, you know, the five eyes group, which you know, is supposed to sort of make decisions together. Um, and if Britain, you know, is still sort of considering Huawei and America isn't, it's not even so much an East versus West conversation anymore. You know, China is now interfering without having really to do anything. And, you know, I think Mike, uh, Mike Pompeo actually recently said something that I thought was very telling and also kind of a theme of our podcast, which is like sort of data is the new oil, that he basically said, you know, this is what China wants. They want to divide Western alliances through bits and bites, not bullets and bombs. And I just, I like reading that, I got sort of full body chills because to me, sort of as a, as a civilian, it makes me feel a lot more powerless um, when I read things like that, you know, bullets and bombs seem kind of manageable <laughs> in comparison to data. Right. And I, I also think that, um, Nick, to your point, uh, we could we could be moving towards a world in which um, cyber warfare becomes more and more prominent. In fact, we almost certainly are. And we will see, you know, Chinese attacks on the U.S. and U.S. attacks on the Chinese, one system directed outwardly against another. Um, but I, I, I actually and I agree with Kara, which is that in, in the immediate term, more threatening than that is the idea of this um, information warfare, the idea that in China you can only access certain information which has been preordained by the state. So all of a sudden you're in a world where the citizenship uh, feels very defensive, very jingoistic, very patriotic. On the US side, there's no government policy to um, influence how we feel, but the logic of social networks to surface continually the most emotional uh, information, which is designed to make us feel more so that it makes us click more and share more, also has these tensions running very high. So I think on both sides, the potential for cultural misunderstanding facilitated by this bifurcated internet is extremely high and perhaps even more worrying for now than the military to military algorithmic conflict. 
So when you look at, <clears throat> in your podcast, you, sp- you spoke to um, lots and lots of people from lots of different areas of technology. And, um, and the thing that we always tend to talk about in the future is all the bad stuff. And I want to get to that, but I, I think that maybe rather than give everyone a panic attack five <laughs> minutes into the show, um, <clears throat> which is usually my, my MO, um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the, the stuff that you discovered um, in terms of how these new technologies are actually going to make the world better. And, and some of the things you talk about are with healthcare. Um, get into that a little bit and tell us kind of, tell us the upside of all of this stuff before we, before we start to terrify each other a little bit. Well, Kara recorded the most amazing uh, piece today about um, AI and using AI to, thin- to synthesize voices. So to create a voice from pre-existing voice data. I, I, want, I want her to tell you about it because it really blew my mind. Yeah, so th- there's this company in Canada, actually, called Lyrebird AI. And anyone, I mean, if anyone's listening now, anybody can go on their website. It's lyrebird.ai and test the technology for themselves. But basically, what I had to do is I wanted to create a, a deep fake, right? Because I wanted to see how easy it would be. I wanted to basically prank a family member and see if I could get their credit card information. <laughs> um, but... In using Lyrebird, I learned a lot more about how the technology could be beneficial. So, you know, what they do is they have you, they had me sit down and record about 40 minutes of reading. So I was reading from an, um, an ebook, and then I was talking a little bit to our producer. And, and then they take that recording and they basically find my voice DNA. So they find the things that make my voice super unique. And then they start to create, they start to synthesize a new deep fake robot Kara, so to speak. (laughs) And then what they do is they pit that robot Kara against my real voice. And this is called a a GAN, GAN, which is like they create a general adversarial network. So basically they're making my robot voice compete with my real voice until the real voice and the robot voice are not so different anymore is my is the simplest way for me so to put a, it. So there's a, there's another computer basically on the other side of this generative adversarial network and basically the computer one is trying to continually trick computer two with robot Kara's voice until computer two <laughs> can't tell the difference anymore. At that point, computer one tells Liabird, okay, this voice is ready to go out she's, into the world. She's ready to steal she's credit to cards. Um, and, so, and so I did that and, and the voice was actually quite good um you know it sounded like me it sounded kind of monotone and tired and annoyed (laughs) and um and so that was great and really interesting but then what we learned in sort of speaking to Lyrebird is that they were contacted um by a larger organization to um to speak to a man named um pat quinn and pat quinn created the ice bucket challenge which we remember which raised an extraordinary amount of money for the ice bucket uh, for the for als excuse me and Pat knew um, as a symptom of ALS that he was going to lose his voice. And actually, at the time they contacted, or the time Pat contacted Lyrebird, it was too late for him to pre-record. But they'd they'd collected enough material or voice material to basically create um, a new vo- uh, voice for Pat, so that he could communicate with language to his loved ones. And so this sort of emerges a new way to use voice technology um, that Lyrebird has identified. And they have had an outpouring of, you know, both 
ALS patients, people who are terminally ill, who know that they might pass away, but who have time to collect enough voice data to basically create a voice that can speak, and, and, I, and I don't mean to say this in a weird way, but can sort of speak past death, right? So that can sort of render a patient immortal, at least vocally. Is there a world where we, you know, I've heard about this stuff before. We've seen this stuff on sci- in sci-fi, but is there a world where, um, let's just say you take my social, let's just say I use social media. I don't really use it anymore, but I did. And you take all of this information, all my emails, all my text messages, all my, I give it all up at the end of my life. And, uh, and you take all my social media stuff. And is there a world where like my great, great, great grandkids could have a conversation with me uh, based on all the data that exists? Yes. <laughs> That's the short answer. And actually, so I should say, I, I left out a part in the beginning, which is that after your the robot voice has been synthesized, you can program your voice to with a script, essentially. So I could say, okay, I want to call my sister and my sister and I are going out to dinner tonight. I'm going to say to her, hi, or are we still on for dinner? So in a world that you don't even have grandchildren yet, you know, you could still so say- So you could, you could fake news your sister about dinner and she wouldn't even know it was, wasn't you that called. It was like your calendar that did it. Well, it's really about the quality of the voice. It's not so much of the fact that it's not possible. So yes, I can call my sister up and say, hey, wow. are we on for dinner? But I think that you raise an interesting point, which is what we've been talking about so far is the ability to synthesize the sound of a voice using uh, AI and generative adversarial networks through Liabird. But there's a second phase of this, right, which is what you're saying, which is what if you also scraped all the social media posts you'd ever written, all the tweets Nick's ever done, all the Gmails Nick's ever sent, and then there would be a world in which you didn't even need to write a script for this thing to read in your voice. The thing could predict from all of your previous output what you're going to say, what the most likely Nick Bilton article was, or the most likely Nick Bilton podcast. And that's something we've looked about is how um, poets and filmmakers are feeding a bunch of previous poems and previous film scripts into uh, a machine learning algorithm and outputting automatically um, output based on you know previous work. So, so yeah, I mean, this is an amazing idea of this collision between the ability to predict what somebody might say and then the ability to literally put that thing in that person's voice. So, so one of the things that when you talk to different people in Silicon Valley, you know, the, the predominant uh, theory by a lot of people who work in AI and so on is that AI doesn't really exist yet, that it's kind of like artificial, artificial intelligence. But it sounds like from what you're saying that it kind of does. Would you say that it's here or are we, is it just kind of we're scratching the surface of it and it's going to be a few years before we actually start to see real AI uh, enter our lives? I mean, to be completely honest, artificial intelligence is kind of a marketing word, right? Like, it's, it. it's something that, you know, people since the 60s and probably previously, since Alan Turing, since, you know, um, the time of the Victorians and the auto- auto- automated chess players where there's somebody hiding underneath the chessboard and pretending that the robot is playing chess when it beats the punters. I mean, we have always wanted to invest our own creations with intelligence and from the Victorian uh, automated chess player to now, there's tended to be an economic incentive to pretend that these things we've created are intelligent and autonomous. Um, so, you know, I do think that we're getting much, much more sophisticated at this application of looking at vast troves of data 
data, analyzing it, and then predicting what's going to happen next. So that could be something like the sound of a voice. It could be something like what's going to be written next, or it could be something like what's that human driver going to do next on the road. Um, but this idea of intelligence, it's such a deeply loaded emotional word um, that I think it, it, it raises a certain number of questions about who's using it and why. And and is but it but are, are we like from a technical standpoint? Let's just put you know the actual term aside. But what what we all kind of imagine that it is 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 it here or are we are we are we still a ways off? Like is the idea that you know complete autonomy when with driverless vehicles or um, computers that are making decisions better than humans or you know robots that are able to actually kind of uh navigate a busy street um all these things that we kind of talk about a lot is that technology here and it's just not perfected is it here and it hasn't left a lab or are we still are we still some period away before it actually gets here i i mean personally from the work from the work that we've been doing i i would say that there's still a lot to be done as far as the robopocalypse is concerned. Oz is is, is nodding. I, I don't think my my sense is that we're still dealing a lot with human centric AI and that humans are involved. It seems as though humans are always involved, except when it comes to things like looking at twenty eight thousand songs and seeing the certain patterns in those songs. I mean, to what extent is a human involved in the sort of exact experience of looking at each song no a human's not involved but but i think somebody has to create that project you know someone has to create the project of looking at folklore over the past you know ten thousand whatever five thousand years so you know in 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 that way i think human beings are still very much a part of the the conversation and the equation but i'll let oz talk maybe about no, I think I think that's right. I mean, we did an interview yesterday with John Micklethwaite, the former in, uh, the former editor of The Economist and the current editor in chief of Bloomberg News, and he was talking about how journalism is being transformed by AI. And of course, the thing on on my mind uh, as we went in there was, well, of course, you know, journalists are having their minds poisoned by uh, algorithms and fake news and fake videos. And he said, yes, you know, that that's all happening, but also we're able to turn. Uh, algorithms onto analyzing, as Carol was saying, vast troves of data, and that allows journalists to be better. So so long as we let AI do the specific tasks that it's good at, and then um, marry the product it gives us to human intelligence and human cognition uh, and human rationalization, you know, I think there are effective partnerships to be made. What AI, when we talk about AI today, what we mean is very, very fast, very, very sophisticated modeling of statistical probability, what's going to happen next. And AI is getting better and better and better at that in fields like diagnosing cancer, in fields like self-driving, in fields like battlefield target identification. But it can't connect the dots between those things. And it also can't ask why. It can't ask is it good to kill someone it can't ask is it better to leave this mole and see what happens because we don't want to amputate the finger it, it can't make those value judgments and from everything we've seen all the conversations we've had in silicon valley and elsewhere that's not even on the horizon it's not even close not even close i mean one person who speaks interestingly about this is gary marcus who briefly ran ai at uber and he said 
AI has been relying on the same algorithm since the 60s. And because of computational power and the volume of data, it can get better and better and better at statistics. But we're going to need a whole new set of algorithms, a whole new set of computer programs, if we want to begin to approach something of the sophistication of human cognition. So given that it seems like it's it's got a ways to go, um, do you do you think that the um, the discussions around potential job loss in the future to automation and AI are overblown or or is it something that we should still be worried about? Well, I think I mean, if you look at the case of Amazon in the US and, you know, I think it's more about replacing jobs that do not maximize human power, right? So putting, using robotics to replace jobs that human beings don't have to waste their time doing. Um, I think that as far as replacing human jobs... What are, put, those, what are those jobs? So, like, for example, p- creating a box, right, on, a, on an assembly line. Like, do we need to waste human power doing that? You know, assembling a box on an assembly line. Um, making sure that the box is put together. Um, picking fruit. Picking fruit. Oh, right. Washington State, for example, you know, next harvest season will introduce a sort of Hoover-like vacuum that will be harvesting apples for the first time. Um, you know, in the case of strawberry pickers, you know, there are actual like implica- physical implications for workers that have to do this kind of work. Do I think it's... And and in that case, yes, it's putting it's putting people out of jobs, I would say. But you know, do we you know, how can we can we hold back the tide of history? In other words, like um, there's some famous story about uh, a visit to China and, and Deng Xiaoping said that he only gave the workers shovels rather than automatic tools to uh, do construction with because otherwise it would put too many of them out of work. You know, and the responder said, why don't you give them spoons? Uh, and, <laughs> you know, obviously we have to be very sensitive to the fact that there is going to be labor displacement already happening in agriculture, already happening in repetitive manual tasks, soon to be happening in driving. Uh, but that means we have a responsibility to think about what comes next for our economy, what comes next for those people whose jobs have been displaced. But, you know, it's a bit like Trump talking about you know, pr- preserving the coal jobs. It's like, well, the coal jobs are, are either gone uh, or going. And many of the jobs that AI is starting to replace, it's going to be very hard to, to, to fight to get them back, to turn back the tide of history. What um, last question on this topic, and, and then we'll move on to surveillance and other scary stuff like that. But w- when you look at when these jobs do go away, so one of the things that I think people who are working on the technologies to replace these jobs say, oh, well, we'll figure it out. You know, we went through the Industrial Revolution and that was fine. And, you know, Mark Andreessen, the investor down in Silicon Valley, always says that. And when you look at the, the research, it, it, you know, that period of time with the Industrial Revolution took place over about 120 years, and it was the biggest amount of upheaval in, in history. Yeah, there was a huge rise in crime because people couldn't get jobs, and it took a long time before we kind of everything settled down and we finally figured it out. One of my worries with AI and automation and jobs and so on is that that will happen it, you know, it's not going to happen in a vacuum. It's not like we're going to see, um, you know, driverless truckers on the road one minute and then a few years later we'll see, you know, driverless ambulances and a few years later we'll see driverless, account- you know, accountants that are automated or lawyers or whatever. It's all going to happen at the same time. And so we may not be there yet, but when we will get there, we'll get there 
with a thud. Do you, do you, the people you speak to for your podcast, have they said that, have they offered solutions to that? Or is it just kind of hunker down and hope you're not caught up in the, in the morass? And if you are, God be with you? Unfortunately, no one has a good answer. And even if you take AI out of the equation and you look at the extraordinary growth in economic inequality in the last 30 years, the extraordinary concentration of wealth at the top end, you know, we're already heading towards an economically unsustainable system, which has, you know, one class of people who are so rich, they don't have to engage with the trials and tribulations of the world, and another class of people uh, who do and who suffer. And Technology and AI in particular is is rapidly increasing that trend by um, c- concentrating more riches in the hands of the rich and simultaneously taking away jobs from people who have less education, who work in jobs like driving and packaging. And that's really, really, really scary. Uh, and there are people, of course, who have ideas like universal basic income, which is one of Andrew Yang's uh, democratic uh, presidential uh, positions, and various people in Silicon Valley advocated for it. But, you know, you look at countries like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, where most of the citizenry are supported in some way by handouts from the state from oil revenues. And guess what? Like, people aren't very productive. And guess who does the work? Migrant laborers from Pakistan and Bangladesh. Uh, and guess what? Those people don't have any rights. So I think we need to wake up and smell the roses or the coffee, whatever you smell, and say, this is not going to be solved by universal basic income. And we will encounter profound change in our society, potentially for better, but just as likely for worse. Mm. No, I know it's 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 um it just seems like there's this inevitable tidal wave coming and everyone is looking in the other direction and and uh it's hard to get people to kind of turn around with Sleepwalking. this. One, I think it's one of yeah. I think it's one of my my biggest fears in this whole I mean I think the idea you know you know you mentioned the the fact of massive inequality you know the top 4 richest people in the world have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 3.6 billion um you know of those top 4 people three of them are rich because of tech and right. i think that um that that it's going to continue to push that divide even more and i you know i think it's uh um it's it's great that we're talking about it but it seems like everyone should be talking about it especially uh political candidates and and so on and that's a good segue into surveillance actually <laughs> Yeah, so so with, well, the, the you guys have covered this on on the podcast. You spoke to the NYPD and and see how they do things with their AI and so on. And 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 it's also become a it's the topic this week. Really, um, you have Amazon um, uh, and their surveillance technology. You have you know finally people in Congress, AOC and others that are saying, hey, we should we should kind of uh, ban this before it gets out of hand. Walk listeners through where we are with this technology. And, um, and and what the future of it looks like. So I would imagine that by the time people hear this, most people probably know that uh, San Francisco just banned facial recognition technology um, and is the first city to do so in the United States. Um, so that I think that alone sort of is sounding an alarm in this country that has that we have not heard before. Like, and I think... N- Normal people who go about their day are not thinking about surveillance in the. Wait, so 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 just 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 for a second here, just to spell this out for listeners, yeah. can you explain how how accurate the technology is, where how it's being used? Kind of just walk us through you, um, 
what it is at this point in time. You want to know basically how AI is involved in this also? Or, 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 or yeah. what's, what's the difference between a security camera and facial recognition software, essentially? Yeah, just to just just tell people what how it like what's happening. Like, you know, you have examples of um, of software that 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 can you that, you know, there's there's different aspects of it. There's, of course, the thing that you cover where um, AI was used to be able to tell if someone was um, was bisexual, gay or straight um, after taking uh, images of someone off, of people off dating websites. There's examples of of technology that can recognize who you are better than than other humans can. can so explain a little bit of how it's all set up right now for listeners so here i guess the, the best way to describe it is facial recognition technology is taking images that are on a database and matching photos or, or matching other images that are seen by a camera to photos that are in a database or not just photos so it's basically a way of saying is this person that person and there are obviously major issues with that because computers make mistakes so that's how we start thinking that's how we start sort of coming up with you know are facial recognition cameras biased can facial recognition cameras be racist or homophobic um i i think what's important and what I've been I've read or was told is that facial recognition technology is essentially a security camera that can recognize a person and that's because it's using artificial intelligence to recognize. Um do you want to say more about the what was on the podcast? Yeah, exactly? I mean so and 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 to pick up from that. So, you know, we have all these um security cameras around our cities uh, constantly shooting video and that video now isn't very useful because you know it goes into databases the databases are cleared but when you marry that video from those surveillance cameras to the increasingly easy ability to recognize faces and tie them to identities based on publicly available photos from social media or your university website or your work website, wherever it may be, all of a sudden these cameras, you know, which are pointing around our American cities can say, who is that person? Uh, and then on top of that, it can also make predictions about what that person might want or what might drive them. There was a study at Stanford um, which uh, basically uh, pulled a database of publicly available photos from dating websites uh, which had been tagged by uh, sexual preference, so straight, gay, or bisexual. Uh, and the algorithm was able to predict with 90% accuracy for men and I think 80% accuracy for women after learning from this data set what face was likely to be... Um, gay, straight, or bisexual. And so you imagine overlaying a citywide surveillance system which already exists with the ability to uh, make match patterns and say who's, uh, who's, uh, who somebody is. Sorry. With the ability to match patterns and say who somebody is and then predict about them, you know, whether they're gay or straight or bisexual, whether they're stressed, whether they're married, whether they're in a hurry, whether they're relaxed, and then feed that into a police system, it becomes very, very scary, particularly in parts of the world for example, like um, Saudi Arabia, where homosexuality is illegal. So we're kind of empowering the state in, in very new ways with this surveillance technology, which is why I think Kara's example of what's happening in San Francisco is very important. So is this technology being created by folks at Google and, uh, and Amazon and places like that and then outsourced to these different companies and countries, sorry, and to, and to cities and states? Or is it 
does the NYPD have their own version of it that they use? Well, so Amazon actually sells a very, very, very cheap piece of software called Recognition with a K, um, which actually right now, and, and they, and companies buy this technology from Amazon, right? So we talked about this yesterday, actually, you know, the same place where you could buy toilet paper or, you know, dishwashing fluid is also a place where you can buy a very sort of user-friendly um, facial recognition technology software, basically. Um, I think what's important to note is that right now, shareholders at Amazon are also ring, you know, sounding the alarm about the fact that this technology is so easily accessible from a place that is also, that place being Amazon, a place that also does so many other things. Um, and I think there was a time where this technology was very, very costly and was less accessible. And so in that way, I think a lot of people felt as though, okay, well, you'd have to have a lot of money to use this technology and to you know flex this muscle as a company i think we're at a t- uh, in a place right now where the cost of using this technology has gone down so much that it's that it's alarming and you asked about the nypd um and where they get their technology from they were a little cagey on their uh, procurement process. Um, there are some stories in the press suggesting that their um, facial recognition technology is, is powered by IBM. Um, I'm not sure, actually, whether that's true or not. Uh, they're, they're trying to develop their own technologies, certainly. Um, but but and, most of this technology is being developed in the private sector, especially in the US. And is there... Um, so, NYPD, what are they doing with it? Are they tracking um, people who do bad things or are they after they've done them or before they do them? I mean, you, you mentioned uh, in your podcast Minority Report, like what exactly is happening with this stuff that we don't even realize is happening? Well, they don't have a facial recognition policy, which is publicly available. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they say... I mean, yeah, I mean, so they say they use it, you know, as part of, as a tool, as part of policing, you know, which is always subject to the review of the detectives department to help them identify suspects and those types of things. But the reality is, you know, there's Reagan's favorite sort of, sorry, the reality is there's Reagan's famous phrase, trust and verify. We can't verify. We're citizens in the US who don't have the tools or the power or the knowledge of technology to be able to verify. So the, the NYPD tell us they're using facial recognition in a certain way and we have to trust that that's true because there's no policy and there's not even really any agitation major agitation for there to be a policy which i think there should be (laughs) yeah absolutely um and is the uh, do these companies i mean i know we you know we saw a um a thing that happened and i've been covering technology 15 16 17 years now and i've never seen this but we saw earlier last year i believe it was um they all blur together at this point, but uh, where Google employees pushed back against Google allowing their AI technology to be used by the Department of Defense, are the employees at these companies that are building these things are they worried? Are they do they think that this is right that they're? I mean, do they? Is there a moment of consciousness that where they? I mean, of, of morality of I mean, what? What, I would, yeah, what happens I, to them? Yeah, I would say very much so. You know, it kind of reminds me of the Dow Chemical story. But but yeah, I'd say, um, especially at, at Microsoft, um, you know, there was a major rejection of, a, I think it was a DOD contract, right, Oz? Mm-hmm. For, at Microsoft, that yeah. that employees really got up in arms about. And same at Google with Project yeah, Maven. With which Project Maven. Yeah. Um, and I also think that, you know, it, if I, 
as a private citizen, you know, if Amazon shareholders are ringing the alarm, you know, there, there's something to worry about because these are people who are profiting off of the, you know, the cost of shares. So, uh, you know, I think these are people that are going sort of outside of their own interests to say, you know, this is too this is too easy for Amazon. We need to sort of look at who we're selling to and, you know, why. Yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, again, coming uh, from from Britain, as I know you do, Nick, um, there's this kind of uh, expectation here that um, somehow companies should self-regulate or that, you know, if enough junior employees in a company are up in arms, you know, as they were with Project Maven at Google, they can affect change. And to a certain extent, to a certain extent that's true. Project Maven was cancelled. But the reality is, it's not the responsibility of the employees or the shareholders of these companies to hold them to account or control uh, what they do or don't do. Um, it's what our legislators should be doing. Now, uh, coming back to China, there's a real irony uh, just today. Yeah, I was actually. about to ask about the China aspect of it. Keep going, yeah. So, I will, I'll, I'll let Kara talk about the, the Uyghurs and what's happening to them. But basically, um, China is is the behemoth of surveillance, that the biggest surveillance state in the world. And I was there myself a few weeks ago. There are cameras absolutely everywhere. When you land on the plane into Beijing, a short video is shown, uh, which includes a surveillance camera telling you that you're going to be monitored wherever you go, which, by the way, has a chilling effect whether or not it's true. Um, but as part of this Huawei c conflict that we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, uh, the U.S. actually forbid uh, U.S. corporations from dealing with another Chinese corporation, which is called Hikvision. And Hikvision is a Chinese video surveillance company uh, that, uh, according to reports, is very much involved with the monitoring and suppression of the Uyghur ethnic minority in Western China. Hmm. So is the is the technology in China what where we could end up unless there's some sort of legislation in the United States or is it going to be I mean is the fear in the US China has a, a you know a, a police state essentially where they monitor what people say what people think for some in some direct in some degree um, uh, what people talk about and so on and and they erase history and the present and the future in the U.S., we have different. It's a different culture. We have the First Amendment. We have all these things in place that um, stop that from happening. Is the worry in the U.S. that we would end up with a monitored state by the state or by corporations like Facebook that would be kind of looking at our web cameras to see what we're talking about and who's there and kind of delivering better advertising for their own goal, or is it both? Well, I mean, as of now, the Chinese government. Let me put it this way. The Chinese government has a massive, <laughs> basically, data mining operation called EJOP, right? Where they're collecting data from so many different sources, right? Whether it be WeChat, uh, facial recognition cameras in the metro stations, where you're buying an airplane ticket, where you're going for your drinks. You know, these are... This is un the collection of this data is unregulated, right? In the United States, and, and and also by the way, I should say that's and they're c collecting all this data using artificial intelligence, right? Because of computing power, it's actually quite easy to collect this data and then infer patterns from it, right? Right, like oh, this person is going to mosque, this person is visiting his relatives in X, this person, you know, 
must be part of the Uyghur minority. Let's send that person to a re-education camp. Making, you know, predicting or making assumptions about a person based on the data that they create, you know, that's what's happening in China right now. Is it possible in the United States to do something similar? Yes, because think about how much data we create every day. I mean, think about, I think about it now more than ever just from working on this podcast, but it's like, you know, I buy a Starbucks, you know, using the Starbucks app. And then I'm, you know, seen on a few surveillance cameras in any given day. And then I'm booking a flight to Los Angeles. And then, you know, I'm texting and WhatsApping friends in different countries. You know what? And then I'm going to synagogue. You know, what does that say about me? Um, what we don't have here is basically a collection system that's run using artificial intelligence that is monitored by the United States government. Right. right. So the key difference is... It is happening here in the U.S., but it's happening in a in a way which is run by private corporations who are operating for profit, who jealously guard their data both from one another and from the U.S. government. So, so it's, it's all a lot siloed. More, it's a lot more siloed. And uh, whereas in China, you can connect the dots, and that means you can make much better predictions about what people are going to do next, who they might be friends with, and then determine their outcomes at a state level. But but the difference is not technological. It's to do with it's, how data is stored yeah. and what our culture is, which I think is a part of a larger point right which is not so much the technology but it's who's in control of the technology yeah. right so technology there's technology as Oz was saying technology that's exists in china absolutely exists in the united states it's just a matter of you know who's regulating the technology and um i did want to say something that i think will be interesting to people um that didn't exactly make it into one of the episodes but i think really um highlights how facial recognition technology could come to the United States and is and, and will be in the United States very soon. Um, you know, the facial recognition technology can be used to make life easier for people. You know, I'm I'm talking about like fast lanes, essentially, right? You see clear when you go to the airport. There is a company now uh, that was mentioned briefly on the episode called Blink Identity that Ticketmaster invested in basically to make your concert going experience easier and faster. So when you get a ticket, you upload a selfie that goes along with your ticket. And when you get to the stadium or the concert venue, you walk right in using your face, right? So it's very seamless. It's very futuristic. And that company, the people who founded that company were actually two people who worked for the Department of Defense and who, you know, really care about the ethical implications of facial recognition technology. They are not planning on, you know, farming this technology out to the U.S. government anymore now that they don't work for the Department of Defense. But I think my point is, is that I was very taken by the fact that they cared. Um, and when I asked them questions about where my data was going, they had very good answers about it. I think... The point is that we need to be asking these questions. If 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 somebody is asking for your photograph, you 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 should ask where it's ending up and if it's being deleted in a hard delete. You know, I'm if well, you well one of the but one of the things so just to uh, just to push back a little bit. So one of the things you know when you talk to people in China uh, officials and I you know I, I have for reporting I've done and you know they talk about how sure there's a there's a um, there's a, a camera system that monitors everything, but 
crime is drastically lower. Of course, these numbers could be fudged, but, you know, just statistically looking, you know, robberies, we have six times more robberies in the U.S. We have 18 times more gun crimes. We have four times more murder rate. We have, um, there's all these statistics that where our crime rates are higher and theirs are lower. And I wonder if maybe, I mean, of course, I don't necessarily know how much we all trust the government here, but if maybe there's an upside to it a little bit when it comes to crime or no? Well, I think it comes down to values, right? I, I mean, I would be inclined to believe that crime rates in China are much lower. I mean, having just been there, walking around town late at night in Shanghai and Beijing, there's absolutely no suggestion of, of any threat or anybody hanging out on the streets. I mean, it's it's sort of pristine. Um, but the Chinese political system and Chinese intellectual history values harmony and Confucianism and unity. And apart from the Uyghur minority and the Tibetans, it's a more or less ethnically homogenous Han society. In the US, we value personal liberty. We value uh, each person having their own voice. We value diversity. We value different communities. And so, you know, it's a question of what you value. If you value harmony and social order, then it's okay to accept more uh, surveillance and social control in order to achieve that. If you value personal liberty and freedom and diversity, then surveillance and algorithmic policing and predictive policing are absolutely contrary to those values. So the values always inform the technological outcomes. All right. So um, we have a time for a couple more questions. So I just want to kind of bring this back to the beginning. So you mentioned in the beginning that one of the things that started you off on this quest to do this podcast was that you saw people in Silicon Valley uh, who worked in that industry didn't let their kids uh, use these technologies. I wrote a story for the New York Times uh, five, six years ago that I think is still the most read thing I've ever written. And it was about how one day I was talking to Steve Jobs for a story I was working on about the iPad. And I said, have your kids used it? And he said, no, I wouldn't let them use it. We don't, they don't use technology in our house. And, and I heard from all these different CEOs that ran these companies, Twitter and, and, and execs at Facebook and all these places where they, they, only let their kids use the technology in the living room for four minutes a day. They unplug their Wi-Fi routers at night. They they do all these things. Are we kind of suckers that are being used and abused and kind of okay with it? Or yeah, uh, does, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, I would say. Well, actually, Nick, we yeah quoted your. I mean, I I loosely quoted your piece or your interview with Steve Jobs um, in our first episode, because I did find it very interesting, of course, that Steve Jobs would say that his kid has never even seen an iPad. By the way, if you show a kid an iPad, he can't unsee the iPad, so don't show your child an iPad. But, yeah, yeah. but additionally, you know, you, um, uh, after I read that, we were sort of joking around. It would be like if Phil Knight went home and was like, nobody wear Nikes. Like, you can't, you're going to break all your ankles, you know, don't wear them. Wolfgang Puck said, <laughs> <laughs> come in for a hot pizza, but my kids don't eat here, you know? Right. It's like, what so, are we doing? Yeah. So I think, you know, are we all suckered? I, I think part of, you know, one of the core themes in this show is it is a little bit too little too late. And and not we're not trying to be all doom and gloom, but I do think if you're a person who, you know, spends a lot of your waking day interacting with products that are created by the big five tech companies, you know, you really should start to rethink what you're doing. It doesn't mean change your life. You know, it, it just means ha- be conscious of the fact that every time you send an email, 
you're most likely using a Google product. You know, every time, you know, every time you or or ask yourself, when I watch a movie, when I watch a TV show, where am I watching it? You know, um, when I buy something, where am I buying it from? And what else does that company sell? Yeah, but I also hmm. think to your point, Nick, about are we suckers? We're, we're genetically, biologically, evolutionary, evolutionarily predisposed to be suckers. We like to feel good. We like sugar. We like alcohol. We like sex. You know, we like technology. We like we're addictive. We we do the things which make us feel good more and more and more. And these technologies, the iPad, the iPhone, Facebook, were constructed, as Tristan Harris told us, who's a design ethicist formerly of Google, with Pavlovian response techniques in mind, with supermarket uh, architecture and casino architecture in mind, to make us feel as good as possible and make us use them more and more and more. So... Yes, we're suckers, but we also like we shouldn't blame ourselves for right. being suckers. We were suckers for sugar. We were suckers for cigarettes. We were suckers yes, for but it's still we should be. You know, if so, if if someone tells us that, you know, sugar is the highest killer there is, we tried. Some people, uh, you know, try to cut down their sugar and. But with and, the help um, of government, I mean, the key difference is yeah. all of those industries yeah. were were constrained by government, and technology is not being constrained by government, and that is the biggest problem of our time. Is why we're doing this podcast. Um, all right. So if you were to um, say, uh, and this is my second to last question, then I have, I have one after this. But if you were to say what government should do to, to change this, do you think that Facebook should be broken up or an Amazon should be broken up? Or uh, what is the thing that government should be doing that they're not doing right now? Well, I think San Francisco is a bit in the right direction. Or no, it's, it's very much in the right direction. I, I think, you know, First of all, engaging engaging your local government in the use of technology, the use of surveillance technology is like one thing that needs to be happening five years ago. Um, Everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Um, I think that, you know, as far as data collection is concerned, um, citizens should be asking their politicians consistently, you know, who owns my data and what's going to happen to my data in perpetuity? Politicians should care about that because it's because because everybody is creating so much of it. Right. Wouldn't you say? I, I agree. And also, like, I think it's been an unfair question on citizens to say, hey, citizens, you figure out what to do. I mean, we live in a representative democracy. Sorry, we live in a representative democracy. No one said to the citizens, you know, what should we do about food safety and you know, c calorific content and the blend between different types of things to, to eat? And I said, well, the citizens didn't invent the FDA, so there's nothing we can do. You know, it's like that's not really the job of citizens. The job of citizens is to, is to demand uh, change and to say, look, this is not acceptable. This is not how we want to live. But it's not our job to craft legislation. That, that's the job of the politicians. But your question about the big technology companies, yeah, undoubtedly they're too big. Uh, undoubtedly they're in too many different business areas undoubtedly allowing facebook to acquire whatsapp and instagram has laid the foundations for where we are today undoubtedly allowing amazon to host netflix and amazon and ge and pfizer through amazon and nasa and nasa through <laughs> amazon web services these companies are are overwhelmingly powerful and increasingly you know competitive in terms of power with the state we did a piece at google x about loon and the balloon internet balloons restoring connectivity to puerto rico after the hurricane that's great like, fantastic that puerto rico is back online but on the other hand 
when you're the government and you're relying on a private corporation to restore mm. internet to one of your territories, who's in control? Yeah. No, it's it's terrifying. It it all is. Okay, so I want to I want to kick off the end with uh, one good thing and one terrifying thing. So I want to ask you both to tell me in all the reporting you've done for this podcast uh, or elsewhere, what is the most exciting thing that you see on in the horizon and what is the most terrifying thing? Kara, uh, well, let's start with you. Oh boy. Um, the most exciting thing, I mean, I the most exciting thing that, you know, I actually talked about it before. I think the, I think Liarbird, I know it doesn't sound like it has huge sort of life altering implications, but I, I think as far as like philosophical ends are concerned, the idea that people can tr- people's voices can truly become immortal really rocked me. Um, when I, you know, I, I I have my father passed away, and to just think that I could program things for him to say to me is out of the movie Her. I mean, like that I could go home every day and basically have a soundboard of my dad asking me, how was your day is, you know, out of uh, an Asimov novel. Um, Yeah. The the scariest thing that I've heard, you know, and and I would say, you know, Human Rights Watch just published a, that I think everybody should read. Human Rights Watch just published a very, 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 disconcerting paper on the state of um you know the humanitarian crisis in China right now as it as it applies to the weaker minority you know there are between 800,000 and 3 million thank people you. in prison 3 million or reeducation camps yeah. but same thing um because they are practicing their own religion so you know that's a humanitarian crisis as far as i'm concerned and it's and it's really being carried out by ejop which i talked about you know which is powered by artificial intelligence so again you know we've talked a lot about dual use technology uh in our podcast which usually sort of refers to things that are both used for uh, military and consumer applications but i think when we talk about ai you know dual use when we talk about it on our show is also about good and bad, you know, Liarbird again is kind of teaching us how to create deep fakes so that more people are aware of deep fakes, you know, deep fakes are responsible for the spread of misinformation. They can also be responsible for giving someone who suffers from ALS a new voice. So I think we're in a time that right now where, you know, this technology is extremely powerful. As I said before, it's not so much about the technology itself. It's what it's being used for. Um, and I think it's kind of mind-blowing that a lot of this technology can be used for such harm and such awesome, you know, I don't know, almost futuristic <laughs> advancement. So I don't know. It's a it's a very interesting time that we live in. But ple- I really hope that everybody reads that Human Rights Watch paper because it's it's alarming and Americans should really, Americans should look at it, you know, as Americans, but also as just citizens of the world, it's it's a real humanitarian crisis, what's going on in China right now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Oz, you're up. <laughs> scare, well, scare us. <laughs> I think Kara, Kara, with that term dual use, um, put her finger on, you know, one of the big dilemmas, which is often the most terrifying things and the most hopeful things enabled by the AI revolution go hand in hand. Uh, and there's one one thing which particularly struck me, which uh, is to do with death and time of death. So we had a fantastic interview with Siddhartha Mukherjee, who's the author of um, 
the emperor of all maladies and the gene, an incredible oncologist and writer out of Columbia University. And he told this incredible story uh, about uh, being a young doctor and having a patient uh, in the emergency room. And the family said to him, you know, doctor, how long is our son going to live? Is he going to pull through, you know, because we've got things we want to do. And Mukherjee said, you know what, I've seen this kind of thing before. He's going to be fine. Don't don't rush to be here. Uh, you'll have to, you'll have you'll have plenty of time, and actually, in all likelihood, he'll recover. The young man dies, and the family didn't have time for the conversation. Now we're in a world where AI, because of its incredible ability to spot patterns, to make predictions based on previous data, is showing incredibly effective promise, according to recent Stanford papers and, and clinical research at very accurately predicting the time of death of a patient uh, in end-of-life care or in the emergency room. Now, just think about that for a moment. You can say with increasing accuracy because of AI when someone is going to die. Now, now that's in a hospital context, in a clinical context, and so you know it can transform the ability of the relatives to come and, and see them and have the last conversations and spend the time wisely. But extrapolate from there, because the trend of technology tends to be, you know, towards greater things and, and longer, longer term outcomes. What if when we were born, or when we were 10, or when we were 20, we could get a very accurate statistical picture, picture of exactly how much longer we had left to live? We'd all choose to live very, very different lives. I mean, there's the famous Gandhi quote uh, about, you know, about living, living like, learning like you're going to live forever and living like you're going to die tomorrow. But but how, how, for example, you know, now we have stuff like the FICO credit score. Let's say I can predict statistically I'm only going to be around for another six months. I'm going to get 20 credit cards. Go to <laughs> Vegas. Go to, go to Vegas. Go on a binge around the world. Yeah. So a lot of our society rests on, on, on ambiguity and insecurity and lack of knowledge about the future. And AI will allow us to see into the future better, when we're going to die, what we're going to die of, who we're going to fall in love with. And with that insight into the future come extraordinarily profound challenges to every part of our society, for better and for worse. Well, on that note, that's but that was your good that's your good thing right what's your bad thing <laughs> I, that's all very exciting but i gotta hear the bad thing come on what well, do you do you do you want to know when you're gonna die i do i think that they think i do i've ta- thought about this a lot i i think that one of the things we don't talk about a lot because we kind of focus on the future that's kind of immediate is what happens when we get quantum computing and things like that and um and in those instances, you know, everything that we talk about will accelerate uh, exponentially. And you know, one of the things that I've seen studies about is the idea that we would be able to calculate within almost real time based on what you're doing and what you're eating and who you're interacting with. And if you're riding a motorcycle to work or if you had a candy bar for lunch or whatever, um, kind of within some probability when you're going to die. And I think right. that that is probably going to have when that does happen, I think it will have the biggest impact on society that we've ever seen, uh, both well, good and bad. the insurance business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, no, which is, we, we talk about that, though, we just do. sort of <clears throat> surveillance capitalism. That, the, yeah. you know, the more, and, and I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a, I don't know if surveillance capitalism is a terrible thing, is the worst thing we've heard about it on the show. But surveillance capitalism, I mean, think of, I just, we sort of beg the question to people, it's like, how much data are you producing in a given day that can then be used to affect your future, right? And as a company or 
as far as companies are concerned, you know, how are companies in the future going to use your data to make money off of you? You know, from the little things, basically, like, you know, in, on Instagram, turning Instagram into a human, you know, a moving billboard, um, all the way to, you know, creating insurance policies because a program in a car knows how many times, you know, you look at your phone while you're driving and how likely you are to yeah. get in a car accident. You know, and so... Yeah. I think it's, I don't know, I don't know if it's so much one thing that's super scary, but the implications of it's, data collection in general. I have got one thing for you, Nick, as well. Give me one quick thing and then, we, uh, and then we'll have to run, but okay. give me one quick thing. What is it? So, so going back to your question about what happens when we have a workforce whose work is no longer relevant, right? Um, yeah. Most of our political institutions, so democracy, liberalism, one man, one vote, uh, and most of our economic system is based on the idea that everybody drives economic value in the system, and that's why everybody has equal worth. Uh, when that starts to change, and when there are whole swathes of humanity who don't have uh, value in their economic output, and when we can model when somebody's likely to die, or what they're likely to do, or how productive they're going to be, that whole edifice begins to crumble. And that's the heart of Yuval Noah Harari's work, who wrote Homo Sapiens and Homo Deus, and who's the last interview on our show in episode 10, which is to say... When people no longer contribute economic value to society, we have a very, very, very poor track record of treating them well. And he he says, look at animals. Animals are sentient. Animals have emotions. But we found out that we don't need to harness their labor. So, you know, we put them in abattoirs and factory farms and eat them. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen to, to us in our society, but we're certainly bifurcating. And our track record of treating others with dignity when they don't help us in human history is really not good so i think i think the economic uh, questions are very important Kara mentioned uh, a couple of sci-fi films one of my favorite quotes from the interview with yuval harari was saying if you want to understand the future don't watch steven spielberg read karl marx <laughs> also on that note thank you what's that no i was just going to say if you've ever been to a nursing home you can understand how much we value people who are no longer um effective to society yeah no, it's, it's, I mean, look, the reality is technology can be used for good and for evil. We just have to hope that we are uh, smart enough or uh, either either smart enough to use it for good or dumb enough not to use it for too much evil. So yeah, well put. We, sh we shall see. Uh, thank you so much. Can you tell everyone where they can get the podcast and whatnot? Anywhere you listen to podcasts, iHeart podcast. Well, we're, we're an iHeart. No, anywhere you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, iHeart Radio app. Spotify. And it's called Spotify. Sleepwalkers. It's called Sleepwalkers, and episode four how came out today, or today's Thursday. And how, how many episodes will there be in total? Ten episodes total, and we, we're Great. building to a conclusion about our transhumanist future and some of those ideas that Yuval Noah Harari brings up. Well, I cannot wait to hear that one. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for taking the time today. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. We really enjoyed it. Thanks, Nick. Thanks to my guests today, Oz and Kara. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these, of course, on applepodcastradio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to you for listening because you're just wonderful. I'll see you next week.
Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.